Genesis 40 and verse 1. We're in the story of Joseph, uh, who by now has been betrayed by his brothers, sold into captivity, uh, has prospered in the household of Potiphar, and then been wrongly accused of committing adultery with Potiphar's wife and has been thrown into jail. So at the moment, Joseph is in jail. Verse four, sorry, chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as he used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. As human beings, we've always longed to know the future. Knowing the future gives you control, doesn't it? If I could just know what tomorrow would bring, what next week would bring, what next year would look like, then my anxieties would fade away. 
So you see at the kind of popular level in the newspaper, the horoscopes are still printed, aren't they? You know, Virgo is entering Sagittarius, and that means that Mr. Right is coming into your life. At the other end of the spectrum, I have a friend who works in the city in London at the trading floors, and I don't understand his job at one iota, but he was telling me a few weeks ago that, that the computers they use to do these trades, you know, stocks and shares and, and the like, uh, the computers that he works on, that they've been desperately trying just to get a thousandth of a second quicker. Because if they can make the computers a thousandth of a second quicker, it'll make them, over the course of a day, millions more dollars. Okay, isn't that nuts? Okay, maybe that's some of your world and you understand that. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But if they can just get a thousandth of a second quicker, reacting to what's going on, they're ahead of the game. If you like, they know the future, as it were, before anyone else does. And it can put millions on their portfolios. I, I don't know. I doubt many of us are in that kind of a world. But for all of us, if we could just know the future, don't you think it would bring stability, an element of comfort to our life? Perhaps at the moment, life is pretty good for you. Uh, there's nothing too weighty on your shoulders, no tragedies crowding in. Life is light and bright. But still there's the voice. Will it last? You see tragedy pounce on friends, family members. And however comfortable you are now, you know that that same tragedy might be around the corner for you. For some of you, you're where Joseph is in our story as we meet him. Uh, he's in the pit, time and again, in, in Joseph. He, he talks about his being in prison as being in the pit. Now, often it's tidied up by different translations, but the, the prison is often the pit. Reminiscent, I think, of that first time. Remember when his brothers betrayed him and chucked him in a pit? But, but it's just a great imagery, isn't it? It's one the Psalms pick up. Often being cast into the pit, we're in that depth where we feel life is overwhelming, we can't see any of the light, we see no escape, and life is just overwhelming us. Relational breakdown, illness, sickness, unemployment, uncertainty, so many things claw at us. There's a reason the most common command in the Bible, do you know what the most common command in the Bible is? You'd think it might be love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, or, or perhaps pray. But, but the most common command is do not fear. The Lord knows his people. We know deep down that, that we are weak and vulnerable. We're all so vulnerable. And so naturally, we get weighed down by anxiety and fear. Joseph is in the pit as we meet him. Joseph, you'll recall, has had these wonderful dreams. As the story of Joseph begins, he's given these two dreams. Do you remember them? The, the, the first is of sheaves of corn in the field. And the, the 11 sheaves that represent his 11 brothers bow down to his sheep. And his second dream of the, the sun, moon, and stars, so his parents are in on on the game now, bowing down before him. 
Now, these are dreams given by God. Often Joseph is portrayed as an arrogant young man, but I'm not sure that's particularly fair. He seems to be a very righteous man in how he acts in the rest of the story. Jacob um, favors him, and that's probably not a good thing. But when Joseph reports his dream, he's reporting the truth. This is the dream that God has given him. God is telling him that one day he will be raised up and his family will bow down before him. That is the word of God to Joseph. God has promised him, if you like, glory. This will happen to you. And the very next thing that happens to him is his brothers beat him up, throw him in a well, and then sell him to the Midianites, where he's taken off to slavery in Egypt. At this stage, whilst he's perhaps on that caravan being being dragged off through the desert, perhaps Joseph is wondering, well, what are the dreams, Lord? What are these great promises of my my glory that you promised me? But but then when he gets to Egypt and he, he finds himself in Potiphar, Uh, The the captain of the guard's household, actually, everything he touches seems to turn to gold. He's raised up within the household. Potiphar ends up putting him in charge of everything. But then along come Potiphar's wife, tries to seduce Joseph, commands him to lie with her. There's nothing very subtle about it. He resists. Again, his righteousness showing. She makes the false accusation, and Potiphar Perhaps knowing, actually, that Joseph isn't truly guilty. If you really thought Joseph had been trying to sleep with his wife, you'd have just had him executed. But needing to save face, he throws him into jail where we meet him in, in Genesis 40. And so he is in that pit again. And this time he's joined by the high officials, the master baker and the master of the, the vine, the butler and the baker, as they're often described And these guys are guilty. Do you notice that? In verse 1, that they had offended. They had sinned against their master. We're not told what they'd done, but they'd done something wrong. They deserve to be in jail, at least as far as Egyptian justice goes. And it just so happens, as is often the case in the story of Joseph, it just so happens that they end up in the same jail as Joseph. And they have these dreams, uh, both on the same night, both seemingly similar, uh, both with very different uh, outcomes. I want to think about these dreams this evening, uh, but but think about them in pieces, as it were, step by step, as we we put the the jigsaw together. What what was Joseph to learn from, from this incident with the butler and the baker. Is it just a, a fun story, a bit of light relief in the middle of the, 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 the arc of Joseph's life? Is it just material for Android Webber to introduce another couple of songs into the, uh, the musical? Well, no, there's a, a deep message, I think, to Joseph, and therefore through Joseph to us uh, in the baker and the butler. What is Joseph to learn? First of all, Joseph is to learn that God is in control of history. God is in control of history. The baker and the butler don't know what their dreams mean. That's why they're sad as Joseph goes in, in verse 7, to serve them. Why are they sad? Well, verse 8, we've had dreams, but no one can interpret them. 
Okay, the Egyptians were in a culture that thought that the dreams had meaning, but they didn't know what that meaning was. And Joseph's, well, his theology is on point, isn't it? Interpretations belong to God. Now, I don't think this is saying, by the way, that every dream you have has an interpretation, and if you can just find the right man, a modern-day Joseph, they will tell you what that dream means. Uh, the other night, I had a, a dream uh, about uh, my friend, who, who actually came from just down the road. He's with us in, uh, in Leeds now, a good Northern Irish man, uh, a bedrock of the church in Leeds, and I had a dream that he was explaining the Trinity to me using different varieties of crisps, Okay you know, quavers, hula hoops. What was the meaning of that dream? Absolutely nothing, okay? Complete rubbish. Don't interpret the Trinity via the medium of crisps. That would be a very bad thing. It, you know, dreams for, for us, okay, are, are not all messages from God by any means. But in this circumstance, well, yes, they are. And the interpretation, which belongs to God, is given to Joseph. Joseph is acting, if you like, as a prophet here, revealing the, the truth of these dreams. But how can, how can God do that? How can God tell Joseph what these dreams mean? Well, because he is going to make sure that the message of the dream actually happens. The dream happens on day one, and three days later, the action happens, if you like. You know, the first dream, he's going to be released from jail and raised back up to his former position, the butler is restored uh, for the baker. He's going to be executed. But they're told that three days in advance. This might seem a very obvious point. But the reason that Joseph knows what's going to happen in the future is because God told him. The reason that God knows is not that he kind of looked down the tunnel of time and like a kind of mystic Meg worked it out. But rather that God is in control of history. You see that throughout the scriptures, don't you? Think of Paul's words in Ephesians, Ephesians 1.11. God predestines everything according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things are worked out according to God's will. We see his sovereignty over the, the natural world. Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in the depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain. He brings out the wind from his storehouses. Weather. The forces of nature, as we call them, are under his control. Or Jesus' sermon, Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. How many sparrows are there out there? And not one drops to the ground without the father knowing. World history is in his hands. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands, preaches Paul in Acts 17. Whatever you study, children, in history, ultimately there is a hand behind it, the hand of the Lord. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. These are challenging words, aren't they, to us? 1 Samuel 2. 
Random events are in his control. You know, the verses in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And even human decisions are under his sovereign will. Proverbs again, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases, Proverbs 21.1. Like a, like a gardener, a landscape gardener, sort of shaping where the river is going to flow in the, the pleasure gardens of the king, the palace gardens, directing the water where he wants it to go. The king's heart is like that. And if that's the king's heart, what about the little nobodies like you and me, the readers of Proverbs are meant to think? Perhaps even more shockingly, even evil decisions are under God's control. Here's Psalm 105, verse 24. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them too numerous for their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. That's Psalm 105 and verse 24. Now, now would you think that of God if I hadn't told you that I'm reading a Bible verse? Okay. The, the enemies of God's people, well, those people, God made their hearts, turned their hearts to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. Now, now we are not robots. Okay. The, the Bible nowhere says we're not responsible for our decisions. We certainly are. We're not puppets on a string. But mysteriously, and in a way that I cannot explain to you, God is completely in control of every decision every human being has ever made. In fact, of every movement of every atom in this universe from the beginning of time until its end. There is mystery there. But, but the answer is found in the greatness of God. He is able to create a universe where both those things are true. You are a, a real thinking human being taking real decisions. And yet he is fully sovereign over those decisions and has planned them from the beginning of time. God is in control of history. If you won't believe me on that, even in that avalanche of Bible verses, think about the crucifixion of Christ. Could it not have happened? Was it possible that actually Pontius Pilate would have said at the end, ah, oh, go on then, I'll, I'll crucify Barabbas. That's the right thing to do. And I'll let Jesus go. Is it possible that Judas might have thought, no, I'll stick with Christ and not betray him? Think of, I don't know, the tens of thousands of decisions that needed to be made, human decisions, in order for Christ to come into the world. What if someone else had caught Joseph's eye? What if Herod had caught him before they fled Bethlehem? The what-ifs could go on and on and on. How many, probably hundreds of thousands of human decisions had to be made in order to get Jesus to the cross, and yet we know he had to go to the cross. Prophesied in the Old Testament, the only way of salvation there was no chance that Jesus would not end up crucified. And yet, from our point of view, in history, if you like, it seems to rely on so many human decisions. Yes, it did. But all those conditions, all those decisions, still under the sovereign hand of God. 
What is the point here? Is this just a lecture on the sovereignty of God? Well, no. But, but we need to, to believe deeply that he is sovereign over all aspects of our life, even the uncomfortable ones. Why? We'll get to in a moment. But, but just for now, let, let me say this. Do you ever ask yourself, is God at work in my life? Perhaps, is God at work in our church? Can I, can I encourage you gently to never ask that question? Never ask the question, is God at work in my life? Is God at work in our church? Of course he is. The question is, how is God at work in my life? How is God at work in my church? He is at work. He may not be at work in the manner you would like or the manner you expected, but he is at work. He's not forgotten about you. Everybody else might have done. Sometimes that happens. It's sad, but it's true. We might think we've disappeared into the corner, but God is at work. And so... We must see the world, our lives, our church life, our family life, and frankly, the, the newspapers, the news at 10, th- through Christian spectacles, through Christian glasses. I, I read a, a story in a, a book written by an atheist, actually, uh, of a, an event that happened in 1950. And the book begins like this. At 7.15 p.m. on the 1st of March, 1950, the choir of Beatrice Nebraska Church were meant to rehearse. All were delayed. One car didn't start. The minister's wife hadn't ironed her daughter's dress. The pianist fell asleep after dinner. At 7.25, the church exploded with a gas leak. None were lost because all were late. Now, the author of the book goes on to say, Christians, foolish little sheep that they are, interpret that as a miracle. But really, you've just got to think clearly and see that it's a coincidence. Now, the facts of the matter, someone falling asleep, someone forgetting to iron a shirt, someone's car breaking down, the facts of the matter don't lead you to either conclusion, do they? Coincidence, atheist understanding, or God's providence, Christian understanding. The facts alone don't point you in either direction. But as Christians... We're called to interpret the facts through the lens of Scripture. We know God is sovereign. And so, of course, in that circumstance, the choir should thank God for protecting them. It's not by way of promise that your choir will always be protected if you have a gas leak or whatever. But it is an example of interpreting not just Scripture rightly, but the world rightly through the lens of Scripture. So the big things in your life. Why am I married to this guy? The little things in your life. Why am I stuck in this traffic jam? There is a purpose. You might not always know that, that purpose. God doesn't always send a Joseph, if you like, to interpret. But there is a purpose. Ultimately, your sanctification. John Newton, Amazing Grace author, John Newton. Everything is necessary that God sends and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. If God has sent something into your life, he deems it necessary. The reasons may be mysterious. It may be painful. (laughs) Think of Joseph. Much of his life was painful, despite the promises of glory. 
but it has a purpose, and that transforms how we see the details of our life. We're single, but we long to be married. It is fine to mourn that. Don't mishear me on this. We're not meant to be Stoics who never cry and weep. Of course we do in the face of suffering. Think of the psalmists, constantly mourning, weeping, lamenting. It is not a Christian attitude to have a fake grin on your face. You know, Romans 8, 28, all things work for the good of you know, those who love God. So, so I don't mind that whatever tragedy has befallen. No, not at all. But it's so encouraging to know there is a purpose behind them. God is in control of history. Uh, the, the second thing Joseph learns is he's, God is in control of history, so he will keep his promise. These two dreams, dreams always come in pairs in Joseph and the story. His own two dreams at the beginning, these two dreams of the baker and the butler, and later on Pharaoh has two dreams, you might remember. Uh, a pair of witnesses. And in the Bible, it's always two witnesses that convict you. What's the purpose? I think the purpose is God giving Joseph more reason to trust his own two dreams. Joseph's dreams, remember, of his, was of his being raised up to glory. And yet, if he looked around with the evidence of his eyes, he saw himself in the pit again. It didn't seem that God's word to bless him was going to come true. And so God sends two men into his life who live a sped-up version, if you like, of Joseph's own story. They have dreams where promises are made to them. One is good, one is bad, but they're both promises. And the outcome happens within three days. The, 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 The dreams that Joseph were given are the prophecy that he is to hold on to, the promise that he is to cling to. But to give him even more reason to believe, he has shown that God does keep his promises as revealed in these dreams. Do you see the point? 2 Peter 1 tells us that we have the prophetic word made more sure, that there are all those prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament, of his death and resurrection. They alone are enough to trust, but now you and I have seen them come true. I have no idea if this is true, but, but one mathematician, a guy called Peter Stoner, Professor Peter Stoner in, in America, it's a terrible thing to say in the pulpit, isn't it? I have no idea if this is true. <laughs> the, the maths of this, I can't, I haven't worked out myself, put it like that. Uh, he took a bunch of these prophecies, prophecies of Christ, you know, he's been born in Bethlehem, uh, that he'd be betrayed, that he would be crucified, all these kind of things. Uh, and he worked out the odds of them coming true. He thought it was 1 in 10 to the power of 21. That means nothing to me. But he gave an illustration. Cover the whole earth with coins 120 feet high, color one of them red, blindfold someone, and ask them to pick it out first time. Same odds of, of those prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament coming true. We've seen in the Old Testament the death and resurrection of Christ promised, and now we've seen it happen. Why is that a help to us if we're in the pit with Joseph? We have seen that God keeps his word, that his prophecies do come true. Even Joseph's prophecies are an encouragement to us. Joseph ultimately is a picture of Christ. Okay, the way he goes down into the pit and is raised up to sit at the right hand of the great emperor. The way that his job, remember, is to feed the world. He feeds his church, his brothers, the Old Testament church, Israel, uh, with bread. 
He's a picture of the true bread of life coming into the world. Joseph's dreams were of him being raised up and the brothers bowing down. Ultimately, a picture of Christ being raised up. But not just that. If Christ is raised up and people are bowing down to him, that means heaven is not empty. You cannot have a king without a people. You cannot have a groom without a bride. You can't have a head without a body. If Christ is going to be in heaven, then his people will be there too. One day, that world of glory that God has promised will come true. One day, this will will seem a dull and distant memory. One day, that the black and white lives we we live will will turn to color. And it will be glory, glory, glory. One day, the sufferings you feel and know and are crushed by at the moment will be but a bad dream. You will awake from what might be a nightmare now. And the reality you awake to will so outshine your present sufferings that it will be incomparable. No more fear, no more shame. Every moment, a moment of love and joy, unimaginably different, unimaginably better. What is the content of those promises? Yes, God is in control of history. He will keep his promises. And his promises are that he will bless and judge. Did you notice with these these dreams, there was a, a repeated theme. Two repeated themes, actually. Two big themes. Each dream, first of all, has a, a lot of threes going on. It's always on the third day. You know, they see three branches. And he's raised up on the third day. Three baskets. Three, three, three. Everything is about the third day. The phrase third day is repeated time and time and time again. Nine times one way or another. Even the action is put into threes. I look at verse 10. Uh, the vine budded, blossomed, and ripened. Uh, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took, squeezed, and put the cup into his hand. Everything's in threes. Even the structure of the passage. Three, 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 three. Third day, third day, third day. And what happens on the third day? Well, the same thing happens to the butler and the baker. Do you notice that? Their head is lifted up. I will lift up your head. That phrase, lifted up, in verse 13, in verse 19, in verse 20. The third day is the day of lifting up. Now, unfortunately for the butler and the baker, the lifting up means different things. Okay, for the butler, good news. You're lifted up back to glory. The right hand of the king. Baker, mm, you will also will be lifted up. Your head from your body. The third day is the day of tragedy and triumph. The day of being raised up. The head being raised up. Is that ringing bells? Is it, is it just me? Am I over-interpreting it here? Number 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us, uh, the gospel, the, the gospel, the things of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, but he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We know if we're good evangelicals that Christ's death and resurrection are prophesied in the Old Testament, but it seems even the third dayness of his resurrection is prophesied in the Old Testament. And we know Jonah, because Jesus uses that example. 
a reference here and there in the prophets perhaps. But I think Joseph is part of that picture, subtle as it is. The third day in the Bible is a day of resurrection, of being lifted up. And Jesus' resurrection is a day of triumph and tragedy. A triumph for Christ and his people. Glory is assured. If you're on his team, his family, you're his bride, part of his body, then your glory is assured. And the resurrection has shown that to you. If you're against him, sin, death, the devil, the enemies of Christ, it's a day of tragedy. The day of resurrection was a day of tragedy for Satan. His head was lifted up. It's like one of those chickens. You decapitate a chicken, they can still run around and cause chaos for a bit. That's Satan for now. Your life may still involve much suffering for now, but there is an end to it. And Christ's resurrection has proven it. You long to know the future, I long to know the future. But by nature, I, I've personally become an anxious person on, on, on certain issues. But I don't have particular promises to me about how long I will live, or my own children's health, or their future. All these things that I get anxious about. But I do have promises about the resurrection of the rest of the body of Christ. Of the glory that is to come. So however deep the pit, there is light. Christ has won and he will demonstrate that victory when he returns. The glory ahead is far greater than the tragedy of the pit. Your enemies that have been defeated on that third day, everything that stands against you has had its head clean lifted off. So whilst they may still wound you, cause you to mourn and cry, you may pass through the pit. The pit will not win because Christ has already won. Let's pray. Our Father, enable us, we pray, to live by faith and not by sight. We admit we are anxious people, fearful people, but we ask that you'd strengthen us by your word and spirit to be people of faith who look above the horizon who are able to cast all our anxieties on you, knowing that your son has triumphed. Father, make us prayerful people, make us hopeful people, confident of the future to which you've called us, and confident in the victory of our Lord. We ask this for his name's sake. Amen.